Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and the star of Home Alone 9. This is probably our most niche After Hours episode to date, all about the experience of running an effective altruism university group, uh, the impact such groups can have, and the challenges involved in making them good. So, if you're not already fairly involved or interested in the effective altruism world, uh, this might not be for you. But ADK After Hours is a place where we're comfortable producing content for smaller audiences, and hopefully we'll have something up your alley soon. In the outro, I'll have an announcement about the fact that we're looking for another audio editor to join our podcast team, so stick around or skip to that if it might be relevant to you. All right, here's Rob and Kuhan. Today, I'm speaking with Kuhan Jayapragasan, someone I've been regularly asked to interview uh, over the last year or two. From 2015 to 2020, Kuhan did an undergrad and then a master's in maths and computer science at Stanford. And during the six years they were there, uh, they did a lot to organize and improve the effective altruism group on campus, something a few listeners have been keen to hear their thoughts on. So welcome to the show, Kuhan. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to, to be on the podcast. Is it possible for you to put uh, maybe some meat on the bones of that little intro there? Uh, what, have you, what have you generally been up to since, uh, since 2015? Yeah, wow, 2015. So um, I started out at Stanford as a pre-med student planning on becoming a doctor. And throughout my first year where I was largely taking pre-med classes, I I had this nagging suspicion that being a doctor wasn't the most impactful way to help people. And yeah, had a kind of mini quarter life crisis over the summer after my first year. I still had no idea what I wanted to major in. Um, since in the U.S. you get to choose your your major while you're in university, but had no idea what I wanted to do with my career. And I thought, oh, I should probably have a better sense of what I want to do after graduating to decide how I spend the next three or more years um, of my education. So I actually Googled something like most impactful careers or something along those lines and found 80,000 hours. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I remember when I when I first opened up 80,000 hours, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I've been looking for. This is incredible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the system works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the SEO really did its job. So I learned about effective altruism, really liked the ideas around, you know, moral circle expansion, being really consistent and rigorous in how to apply these intuitions I had around, you know, say every human's life being of equal value, um, caring about sentience more broadly and, and wanting to be more rigorous about how I applied my moral intuitions to, to my life. So that, yeah, then I started going to a few Stanford EA meetings early on, but yeah, very regrettably, <laughs> I unfortunately didn't really get more involved for a good three-ish years for a few reasons. So one was, I think, frankly, Stanford EA at the time was not the most intro-friendly group. Um, I think there were some really yeah, cool yeah. discussions going on. <laughs> I have visited the Stanford EA group a handful of times, and they were among the uh, <laughs> most, well, very intelligent, really on the cutting edge in terms of the ideas that they would chat about at, at typical meetings. I think it was uh, not the median uh, university group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then I had just read the 80,000 Hours Career Guide at the time. So yeah, you know, no less wrong exposure, hadn't read, you know, like poor economics or didn't know what an RCT was. And <laughs> Yeah, I think I could somewhat or largely follow along with the discussions, but I, I did feel pretty out of place. And, and perhaps more importantly, I think while I thought the discussions were really intellectually stimulating and it was quite clear that the people in these discussions cared a lot about being really rigorous in their thinking and, and cared a lot about impact as someone who was quite new. Yeah, I think it didn't feel like going to meetings was helping me figure out how I personally could do the most good. And also I think, yeah, I, I did feel a bit 
yeah, just intimidated by how much I didn't know and how quickly the conversations were moving. And as a result, I think the meetings were Sunday afternoon. So I would often have homework due on Monday and, and just like kept having excuses for not going to meetings. But yeah, this all changed in 2019 when I was luckily invited to a North American group organizers retreat run by the Center for Effective Altruism. I actually think I, I was only able to go because another Stanford EA member couldn't attend. So yeah, pretty, pretty lucky. And from there, I learned about the community building grants program that CEA was running and thought, oh, wow, this sounds like a way better use of my time than the teaching assistantship I had planned for my master's degree. So I applied to the CBG program, got a grant to do, uh, I think it was 20 hours a week of organizing for Stanford EA. And that's what actually got me into community building and yeah, taking EA really seriously. I see. And that was around 2019. Yeah. So my grant started in September of 2019, but I think, yeah, I, I was approved for that back in April or so. Right. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll return to some of those themes of uh, like the, the challenges of making a local group appealing and accepting of, of everyone. It's definitely difficult to have a culture that, that doesn't bounce <laughs> anyone. So it's good to try to be relatively uh, expansive. What kind of concrete uh, stuff were you doing in 2020, 2021, I guess, you know, up, up until now in terms of trying to grow the Stanford EA group? Yeah. So I started officially running the group, I think, around September of 2019. But I think even before that, had been doing a lot of planning over the summer, which actually involved a lot of just reading about cause prioritization, long-termism, existential risk, community building strategy from resources that other organizers had, had written up, talking to successful EA group organizers in the past, so like past Stanford EA organizers, Oxford, Cambridge, etc., and then, yeah, once the school year started, I think lots of individual messages to people, emails, Facebook posts, lots of advertising. I think I wanted to make sure that anyone who could plausibly be interested in EA with a one-sentence description of it would know about the group and know about how they could learn more and how to get more involved. So, yeah, I remember we had a big talk from Will McCaskill that happened to be on the same day that there was this club or society's fair for service-oriented groups. So I remember, yeah, we were aggressively advertising the, the Will McCaskill talk that was happening later that day and like would, you know, make flyers and, and cardboard signs and, and all that stuff. What drew you to uh, getting involved? I mean, it, it sounds like you had some reservations about, <laughs> about the local group, or at least you, you, did, you didn't feel like you quite fit in. Yeah. But, but nonetheless, you decided to kind of become president of it and, and take it over. What pushed you to do that? I remember even back in 2016, right after reading the 80,000 hours career profile, I remember thinking, wow, these ideas are, are so compelling. Why don't more people know about this? Like so many people I imagined would be as excited as I am if they just saw these arguments. So I think the intuition around wanting to share these ideas because they seem so compelling and I don't know, correct or, or very compelling based on my moral intuitions. Uh, yeah, I had that intuition from an early age. And when I first encountered the arguments, I mean, did talk to lots of friends about EA, even though I wasn't involved with the group as much. But yeah, I think the idea around the multiplier effect argument, we may only have approximately 80,000 hours in our career, but it probably takes way, way less than that to convince others to counterfactually switch their career plans to something much higher impact or um, directly addressing the world's most pressing problems. So, so that argument really stuck with me. And then I think also, you know, just thinking about what a unique situation university is for getting career, career changes, like where and when else do you see such a 
large concentration of really caring, dedicated, driven, talented, ambitious people who are figuring out their values, are like act- actively trying to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their life and are, you know, pretty open-minded and flexible to making pretty big changes or don't even have plans yet. So are, are much more open to, to making tentative plans and are, you know, really starved for, for good advice to help them find some way that they will spend, you know, rest over half of their waking hours after graduating on something that's both exciting to them and intellectually fulfilling, but also helps them achieve their goals and values. And I think for many of them, impact and doing good is, is a pretty strong motivation. Yeah. How straightforward did you find uh, it to get people excited about effective altruist ideas at Stanford? Were there a lot of people who were uh, kind of immediately engaged once they heard about it, or was it a slightly difficult sell? So I think many people would agree that doing more good is better than than doing less good. And, And I think a lot of intuitions that effective altruism is built off of are fairly uncontroversial, at least to, to many people. Yeah, I think there, there, there are trade-offs that different people are feel more inclined to make or, or, or different intuitions that, that feel stronger to certain people than others. So I found for me, like really valuing consistency and rigor in thinking and, and argumentation and taking arguments to their logical conclusions and, and acting accordingly. I think these are values that, for whatever reasons, uh, differentially motivate different people or feel maybe a lot more important to some people than others. I think there are also other things like how intuitions around taking, like how far do you go with say certain moral intuitions or or logical arguments? Like say, yeah, like different people are much more willing to bite the bullet for say the repugnant conclusion or like how far do we extend this uh, caring about well-being and sentience thing when we're thinking about expansive altruism? Yeah, I think like openness to ideas definitely seems pretty important and depending on how strong your like anti-weirdness or anti um, what's considered normal prior is uh, there's de- uh, definitely like adoption of, of various ideas can be like pretty difficult and then there are also other things like how how easy it is to say not pursue the highest paying career option depending on your financial background or family circumstances or all these other considerations like are you an American or an international student or you know th- there are all these other things that make yeah, how broader? How much flexibility do you have in general? Exactly. Yeah. I imagine when you got involved and actually started organizing things, there's probably some aspects of the Stanford EA group that you wanted to shift or, or, or improve. What's one of those that you had in mind? Yeah, I will say that there are lots of aspects of the old Stanford EA group that felt really, really important that I that I wanted to maintain, especially around rigor in, in thinking and discussion and, you know, having a culture of respectful disagreement, you know, like Amman's agreement theorem, when you have two rational agents um, with, I guess, maybe with similar values or something, um, and there is a disagreement, you should be able to figure out if this is due to differences in observations or be able to, to resolve that that disagreement and come down to like some difference in observations or, or, or beliefs or, or maybe priors values or. or something. or Yeah, priors, exactly. Um, so I think this culture of, huh, if we're too rational agents with the with the same goals um we should yeah it's interesting if we have very different value uh, very different uh, ideas about say an answer to a question like how to do the most good or, or which which causes seem most important to work on so yeah i think that that culture of respectful disagreement i, I really liked but also i think uh, a thing i really wanted to emphasize largely based on my initial experience with stanford ea was thinking really hard about okay if i want people who are involved with stanford ea to be thinking 
really carefully about how they can do the most good um, with whatever resources they want to give uh, to to give towards doing that. And I think thinking really hard about how to make involvement with the Stanford EA group, help people make progress on their career plans, Mm. hopefully making some long lasting friends. I think raising ambition among members, like working together on increasing our productivity levels, our ability to actually get things done and, and achieve our goals, improve our thinking and like actually make progress on our plans to do the most good. So I, I wanted to put a lot more emphasis on career planning sessions, figuring out our own cause prioritization, why we think um, what's most important is most important, what the implications of these beliefs are, and then how to apply these to how we spend our time. So uh, figuring out summer plans, figuring out career plan options, figuring out good people uh, both inside and outside the community to talk to, what opportunities to pursue, and then also creating a really fun social environment to be a part of. Yeah, since there have been local local groups, there's been disagreement between people about uh, yeah what what kinds of events they should be running, like what sort of culture they ought to be um, cultivating. So there's all kinds of different topics that we could we could tackle there. I was I was kind of keen to bring up some that recently appeared on the EA forum a couple of weeks ago in this blog post about bad omens in current community building, which raised was like mostly positive, saying that you know local groups are great in a lot of ways uh, and and it's important to get them right, but suggesting that potentially local groups have perhaps gone too far in some particular directions and could be could be turned off some people who should be interested in effective altruism if they really understood it properly and, and and it was getting presented in a in a good light. One concern they had, I guess, is that a lot of local groups kind of uh, they measure their success in terms of how many are heavily involved or highly engaged people who identify as part of the effective altruism community they're kind of causing to exist by informing other students about these ideas and encouraging them to come along to events. When you have that as your key metric, then you tend to get into this very kind of persuasiveness mode where you're just like, all right, we've got to like get people into workshops. We're going to like hit them with the message. We're going to figure out what is most likely to convert people. And you start thinking about it in terms of conversion rather than sharing information. Do you have any thoughts on on, on this general issue of downsides that you might get from trying to game the idea of the idea of just like persuading people and creating EAs, I guess, as uh, some people, some people will call it? Yeah, I think I resonated with a bunch of the ideas in in the post. I think having really strong epistemics is one of the integral parts of of running a really great EA group or or related group. One thought is, man, it's really hard to run an EA group while being a student and uh, being a student full-time, perhaps being involved with other extracurriculars, maybe having jobs on the side to help pay for tuition or, or other expenses. I think because of that and maybe other intuitions around, you know, it's just a lot more exciting when when your group has lots of members, these problems seem extremely important. And for many of them, there are just so few people working on them, or at least at the very least, far fewer than the ideal number, often due to simple reasons like lack of awareness of these ideas, or perhaps the ideas not being presented in in the most uh, compelling way. Uh, I think the yeah intuition that we should get as many people as possible is is very understandable. Yeah, totally. But at the same time, yeah, I, I think it's it's really important to have good epistemics um, and show how rigorous thinking in the community can be, and and why it's why it's so important to have really rigorous thinking, given how complex the problems we're trying to solve are. If they weren't so complex, you know, mm. it's a lot more likely that they would have been solved already. So I definitely agree that it's really important to. Both do your research, think through arguments, steel man counter arguments, and think of what you really think, um, what what the best responses are, how uncertain you are about various claims, um, and ways to to reduce your uncertainty. I and mean, I think it's also just 
really good to be honest with people you're talking to about how, how much you know, how confident you are, what your uncertainties are. Mm. I think showing that you're a really thoughtful, caring person and that the the community, other community members around you and your group are as well, I think is for the people who I think could really resonate with EA ideas and take these ideas really seriously and, and, and contribute a lot to the world's most pressing problems. Um, yeah. I think that's just a lot more compelling than something that's like pretty clearly a, a sales pitch or something that, that isn't trying to be rigorous or isn't um, properly caveated or qualified. Yeah. Reading that post, it occurred to me that I think as many people might think that promoting effective altruist ideas on, on campus is a pretty accessible thing to do, which which in a sense it is. But if you want to go and talk to uh, really bright people about these very complex problems and very kind of cha- challenging conceptual issues that come up as soon as you start trying to prioritize the world's problems, then in order to do that well, you have to like not only just be able to parrot things that you've heard other people say, but you have to understand them well enough to present them faithfully. And then when people push back and they have objections, so they're like, what about this empirical fact that I know that you don't know? Either just be happy saying, look, to be honest, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to ask someone else about this because I'm kind of new to this whole thing as well. Or be sharp enough and knowledgeable enough in order to provide a useful response that will either like, address people's objections or point them in the right direction in order to, to, to learn more, which, which is easier said than done. For sure. Yeah. So I can totally understand, especially with, I guess, student groups where many of the members are going to be, you know, undergrads are churning over pretty quickly. A quarter or a third of them leave every year. Many people are going to be fairly new. It's very natural to kind of repeat things that you've heard without like necessarily having invested years yet into researching them yourselves and independently deciding which parts you agree with and which parts you don't. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, really having time to think through these arguments very rigorously, reading all the relevant material, thinking through all the counter arguments, you know, uh, all the things I mentioned earlier, that that's just super time consuming. And I, I think it's very understandable that as a student who's, you know, trying to figure out what you want to do with your career, which I imagine for most EA group members isn't continuing to do university community building, there's like always more you can read or learn or talk to people about. So I, I definitely sympathize with students who are like, man, yeah, you're telling me I should think through all the arguments so that I can speak well to people who might bring up reasonable ex- objections that people with a background in the problems we're, we're hoping to get more people to work on might have, but what can you do? Um, I, I think... <laughs> we're all muddling through most of the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, as I said earlier, showing that the thing is you're, you're, you're really thoughtful, care a lot, and care a lot about doing what's right or like what seems best given the information available to you and our, and our limited resources and you know cognitive abilities and, and whatnot... I think, yeah, I, I'm much more of a fan, at least for, you know, EA groups particularly to have the mindset of I want group members to be thinking really rigorously about how they can do the most good and then actually do it rather than my goal is to get people to work on X um, and I'm going to try to say whatever things maximize the likelihood of, of people working on X. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, I think for many of the the problems we're trying to solve, it's fine and good and probably ideal to have it's not like the only people who can make progress on these problems are people who are like super bought into the EA thing or long-termism thing or, or what have you. Mm. There are lots of reasons to work on on these issues. Like, you know, in the precipice, uh, to, in the second chapter, Toby Yard talks about a bunch of different reasons why people might want to work on existential risk reduction as, yeah. as one example. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's not like everyone needs to agree with like these 10 different important core premises or something to do lots of good. Totally. Yeah, another issue that article in the EA forum raised was that some people, and in the view of this uh, author, potentially some of the, some of the best people, get put off by kind of a 
a style of advocating EA that is about persuasion rather than just like exploring ideas and, and informing people yeah. of stuff that they might find mm-hmm. useful. Yeah, do you, do you have any thoughts on kind of the, the balance between explicitly making a case and arguing for what you believe versus uh, just like exploring ideas together? Yeah. So one thought I have is that there are definitely ways to present arguments in a more compelling way. And it's a, I think, sad fact about how humans work that how true or or logical an argument is, is only part of, and maybe like sometimes a small part of what leads us to, you know, actually update our beliefs or change our minds and change our behavior accordingly. So I definitely sympathize with the idea that there are ways to present ideas and arguments in a way that's more likely to get people to seriously engage with them. For example, I think it's a lot easier to believe an argument on, say, an emotional level, even if you maybe agree with it on an intellectual level, when it's not super costly to act in accordance with the logical implications of the argument and there are clear, clear next steps or actions to take that, that actually seem exciting. But that being said, I, I definitely resonate with the, you know, when you're trying to make a sales pitch, I think we have pretty good gut intuitions around, oh, I feel like someone's trying to trick me or like not let me actually think through what I believe and why. And yeah, yeah, I think that that's definitely bad. <laughs> and if I raise an objection, they just like do some slick move where they move on to the next point. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, that, it's pretty easy to catch that or like sense that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. One way that we, we hope to address this at 80,000 hours is interviewing people who are from outside 80,000 hours who know more about their area of specialty than we do. I wonder whether it might be better for student groups sometimes to, to do like more guests speakers who actually like have much more knowledge maybe than anyone in the student group does about their particular problem that they're working on and and could like seriously address objections that people might raise in the audience. I think that would be great. I think uh, another thing that I think has worked well for me and in conversations with people who know much more than me about certain topics that are relevant to, to what we're discussing is saying, I have uncertainty here. I don't really know what's best. Here are like arguments I've heard or like here, here are thoughts I have that might be like pointers to check out more resources on, on a topic or to think through ideas more rather than saying, oh, I think you're wrong. And mm. uh, even though I can't really explain why, like, trust me, people who've thought about it more <laughs> um, are pretty <laughs> sure. Yeah, I feel pretty optimistic about getting people excited to learn more or even just entertain the possibility that, oh, this claim does seem pretty wild or like big if true, but it seems important to figure out if it is true, because if so, that would have pretty large or wild implications. Yeah. What's a lesson or two you learned from, yeah, being involved with with Sanofi for a few years? Yeah, I think perhaps the most salient or maybe most important lesson or concept that feels a lot more salient to me now um, is I remember reading about the idea of heroic responsibility mm. and, and really resonating with it. The idea that when I really care about something, there's no excuse when it comes to the thing I care about ha- uh, happening or not happening. Trying really hard or assuming that other more qualified people have things handled uh, or like telling others about the problem or something isn't an excuse when I really care about something happening um, or care about the outcomes. I think our intuition that we only have limited responsibility for failure or, or for not achieving our goals comes from how that's how things usually work in society. Our teachers and, 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 other, and parents and other people usually just hold us responsible to a limited degree. We're often not blamed for, for some failure if we tried. But I think taking heroic responsibility is about remembering that we don't just care about avoiding social blame for, for a bad outcome. We actually care about preventing the bad outcome. And, and when that's the thing you care about, 
just like doing your part uh, or like what's plausibly reasonable to expect of you, you know, isn't good enough. The thing that matters is the thing you care about, actually. Yeah. So it's the idea uh, that I mean, so, so, so a lot of the time we potentially go through the motions or something. We do whatever is like reasonable in other people's eyes in order to try to accomplish some goal, uh, because maybe we don't care about the goal that much in itself. We just care about being big C to do what's reasonable. But if you actually care about getting a particular outcome, sometimes that requires you to go beyond what other people would judge as reasonable and just to do whatever is going to work in that specific case. I mean, it strikes me as a little bit stressful of an attitude to have. I'm not sure that I take that attitude to, to, to everything in my life. Like sometimes I just want to be, I just want to do <laughs> what feels safe and reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is a pretty intense mindset and not one I embody all the time, to be sure. But um, as an example of how this applied to university group organizing, I think as I got more involved with community building, I learned that lots of things that seemed pretty clearly good to do just weren't being done. And that this was often due to just a lack of capacity and the number of people working on these issues full time and really devoting a lot of attention to it being surprisingly low, at least especially back when I started out. I think things have expanded very rapidly, which is both really exciting and, you know, comes with some different issues and growing pains as as we're just discussed in that post. But yeah, I found it pretty empowering to see that despite not really having much of an organizer or community building background, just, you know, reading a bunch, talking to people and, and just thinking hard about how I could provide value and, and what things seemed most, uh, you know, impactful to do and actually putting effort into executing on these ideas and getting others around me excited about doing the same could go a really long way. Yeah, I think it's pretty wild that a bunch of students who had only really been into EA and these ideas or involved with the community for around a year were within, you know, within less than a year organizing one of the few programs on existential risk through the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative. And, and last year, um, one of the largest internship programs a year later. So yeah, I think just like caring a lot, being rigorous and, and trying hard can get you pretty far. Yeah, I guess it makes sense when I guess something is kind of run on a volunteer basis or like who shows up basis determines what gets done. Then having yeah. a sense of, yeah. well, if I don't do it, it's probably not going to happen. So if I want to make right. it, if I want it to happen, then I just have to put in the hours and I need to become the champion for that project. And that's a, that's a really useful attitude to have when you're yeah, involved in a, in a student group. Mm-hmm. The second lesson, or maybe second most important lesson, at least for me, was realizing the salience of opportunity cost. I think since what isn't happening or could be happening in an ideal world isn't clear and you don't really get much feedback on oh yeah, if you had done, just thought a bit harder, been more strategic, things could be 10 times better or something. We don't really get that kind of feedback from the world often. So um, one way to address this, since obviously if things could be better, it's way easier to think of concrete mistakes you make when you actually execute something than it is to to think about strategic mistakes or how much better things, things could be. So uh, one way I try to get around this is um, to regularly brainstorm lots of ideas for projects and, and then see if any of them might actually be useful and do some prioritizing. And it's this regular process of brainstorming how things could be better, what what considerations I might be missing, and that sort of thing that's led to the Stanford Existential Risk Conference, which we've run for the last two years, and also noticing opportunities for perhaps outsized impact. Like um, with university group organizing, I, I realized the beginning of the year just seems extremely important, like way more important than the rest of the year, since that's when people are deciding what clubs they want to get involved with and what their time commitments are going to be. 
that's often when a lot of their strongest friendships that'll last for their whole time during university form. That's when classes aren't particularly busy yet and people actually have time to explore and consider different options. And, you know, noticing this, um, I also realized that, oh, Stanford actually starts three weeks later than most U.S. universities. So um, a bunch of Stanford EA organizers went to a few different U.S. universities to help out with their beginning of year outreach and programming, um, which I think actually went quite well. So, uh, yeah, just like always thinking of opportunities for outsized impact and, and then actually acting on them and, you know, considering a wide set of possibilities and being open to doing maybe seemingly crazy things like flying to the other side of the country for a few weeks and helping out with like, you know, tabling or, you know, advertising the EA group or running intro presentations or retreats. Um, Yeah, just like that kind of out of the box thinking, I think has been really helpful. What's one of the kind of projects that uh, you took on uh, while you're involved in Stanford EA that uh, you think had really good outcomes? It really like flesh out what it involved. Yeah, so I think the, uh, I guess we called it the Stanford EA Residency Program. Uh, It was kind of an unofficial thing uh, with a bunch of students uh, that could have been much better planned, but I I think was a great idea that can be iterated on for future years. There's one example of this. Another example was over the pandemic, realizing that, oh, since we're going to have to run all of our programming online anyway, this seems like a really unique opportunity to open up our programming to a much broader audience. So um, basically, even our first iteration of uh, our intro to EA um, program or fellowship, we opened up, I think, globally. uh, And I think that was uh, pretty successful. Like we had attendees from like Brazil and the Philippines and the United Arab Emirates and, you know, all over the world, which was really exciting. We had students from universities or cities or countries without a local EA group being able to participate And I think doing this was at least somewhat instrumental in that kind of evolving into what's now the Effective Altruism virtual programs. Um, I think Oxford EA also did a similar thing with their in-depth program, opening that up globally uh, and going quite well. So just noticing how to make the most of a pretty unfortunate or very unfortunate situation with with COVID um, and using that as an opportunity to make EA content more accessible to a broader audience is yet maybe another example of a project that uh, felt pretty cool, like having, you know, hundreds, I think we had 300 participants in our um, intro fellowship program one term uh, during the pandemic. That was, uh, yeah, pretty chaotic to organize and get enough facilitators for, but yeah, it was, was also pretty cool at the same time. And, and I think uh, got me more into the mindset of thinking more ambitiously about how to scale up programming I'm doing, how to help it reach a wider audience, how to make sure that the lessons I'm learning from running Stanford EA can extend to university groups and local groups more broadly. Just trying to think, always think about how how we can maximize impact better. <laughs> yeah, nice. I get the sense that it might be a, a little bit easier for local groups now than it was, say, in 2015. Because back in 2015, people had the impression and would say that it felt like we were just kind of saying the same thing again and again and again. I think the reason was just that effective altruism as a community, as a, and as, especially as a research community, was tiny back then. And so the amount of like, people actually generating new content and novel ideas that we'd never discussed before was really just, you could count them kind of on, on one hand. And so the talks tended to remain the same year to year. And it was maybe like hard to find exciting new, new things to say. But these days, I mean, the Effective Actions Forum has so much content and there's so many more people doing research into, into specific problems and specific solutions that it feels like, you know, every month there's exciting new ideas coming out. And uh, maybe that's helpful. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I think getting involved with the community and, and having concrete 
opportunities to engage with these ideas full time, like over an internship or getting a grant to say, do some self-studying or skilling up or the number of internships that are available in orgs that, that you can join and resources for careers outside of EA organizations, like in policy or for technical research or, or, or what have you, or community building, it's entrepreneurship, all the things. Uh, yeah, I think there are just way more resources now and a lot more infrastructure to support people getting involved. And I think also the, the development of EA hubs, these offices and co-working spaces that now exist in a bunch of EA hubs, like groups of friends getting together to often live together or at least like meet regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the number of opportunities to get more integrated and involved and form close friendships with, uh, and, you know, mentorship partnerships and potential collaborations is, is just a lot more accessible now. And I, I think makes things easier as an organizer. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I guess speaking of things that might make things a bit easier these days, it sounds like the Center for Effective Altruism is now offering some training to people who are involved in organizing local groups and, and maybe some other resources as well. What kinds of things do, do, do they have? Yeah. So one program that I'm pretty excited about is the University Group Accelerator program that Jessica McCurdy is running. So yeah, I think the program takes uh, new organizers or organizers for, for newer or younger groups. The program helps them run an intro to EA fellowship program offers advice on intro to EA events, how to run one-on-one conversations or intro to, to EA, like coffee chats well. Um, and there are also a bunch of other resources that are, you know, on the EA forum. I think the EA group, the CEA groups team is also creating a new website. I think the EA groups resources page, I can find, we can find it and um, maybe attach it to the transcript later. Uh, I think there's some other exciting opportunities as well. So the Global Challenges Project uh, has created a university group organizer handbook with a bunch of resources on programs to run with, I think, all the resources you need to advertise the program, run it, recommended reading. So for people who are interested in any given topic, or at least a bunch of uh, topics that you might expect uh, group members to be interested in, or interested students to to want to learn more about, um, there are a bunch of resources there. And I think a, a bunch of community members and group organizers are also very happy to give their time to new organizers to offer advice, lessons they've learned, resources they found particularly useful, and to share what's worked well and what hasn't worked well and what, you know, what doesn't exist but could for people who are interested in taking on projects. Yeah. Do you think there's room for a lot of lot more people to go into local group organizing? I, I guess on the one hand, I've heard that there's been so much excitement about this over the last few years that maybe people have crowded into it um, a little bit too much and have got they've gotten too excited about this versus uh, contributing in, in in other ways. On the other hand, I, I saw this survey last week which suggested I think that only seven point five percent of NYU students had ever heard of effective altruism at all, <laughs> which suggests that there's like I'm sure most of them might wouldn't be interested, in, and uh, most of the people who haven't heard about it wouldn't be interested, but but uh, nonetheless, it might be good to reach that other 92.5% uh, so that they can decide whether it's for them or not. Mm-hmm. I'd suggest that there is a lot of low-hanging fruit left, potentially. What do you reckon? Yeah, so some things I've been thinking recently. One is, I think there are lots of meta-EA and community-building efforts outside of university and local group organizing that I'd be excited to see way more people in. So cause-area-specific you know, field-building and, and community-building, I think, could be really good. So creating resources for people interested in getting up to speed on, you know, the the most important considerations and research for specific cause areas. Um, for example, Cambridge is running some 
global programs like the AGI Safety Fundamentals program for people to get a pretty strong foundation in some of the main or a lot of the main considerations for working on technical or, or AI safety research. And, and I think there's a governance program was recently released as well that some Stanford organizers helped create. Uh, so more programs like that, I think, could be really good more infrastructure for mentorship and, and connections uh, to, to form for people who are interested in skilling up in a particular cause area and learning about, say, summer opportunities, early career opportunities, how to learn more, applying for funding to skill up. Uh, I think, you know, doing independent research can be perhaps a lot easier to do or, or, or motivating to do with peers who are in, in a similar position. So finding these people who are also interested in similar things and maybe working together with them uh, maybe even living together with them. Um, I found living with fellow Stanford EA organizers over the pandemic was really motivating for me to, you know, just like the conversations around dinner being really good and, and leading to lots of idea generation. So um, yeah, there are definitely tons of things outside of, say, just uh, local group and university group organizing that seem really exciting. And I think also things that can scale well seem quite exciting. So resources that can be relevant for all group organizers or for all people interested in a particular career path, I think I'd be excited to see a lot more focus on, on that. Yeah. Some people react negatively to hearing about people who are enthusiastic about effective altruism, you know, even undergrads are all living together in, in the group houses and mm. so on. I definitely get worried when I hear about kind of people like closing their friendship circle. So they like don't have friends who are interested in other topics. But I don't think that we invented the kind of birds of a feather flock together among the undergraduate crowd. <laughs> I remember when I was a student, you know, all kinds of different people would like meet like minded folks and they want to hang out all, all the time at college. That's like actually one of the great things about an undergrad experience. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, many of my friends, maybe even most of my friends, I think, are living with other friends now. Or like, yeah, I think that's becoming increasingly common as a living situation for recent graduates, especially, you know, for people who want to live in cities that are quite expensive and mm. doesn't seem unique to the EA community, at least from from what I can tell. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> What's some... One of the most common reasons for someone who, you know, should or, or could easily get into effective altruism to kind of bounce off of a local group and lose interest? Yeah, I think the the EA forum post you mentioned covered um, some some pretty pretty good considerations. Other potential reasons, I think it's really valuable as a group organizer to think how can I make group members ex experience of being involved with this group valuable. And, and valuable can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean making progress on your career plans. It can mean making progress on your biggest uncertainties relating to how you want to have an impact. It can be socially valuable, you know, forming really great friendships and having really great conversations and having fun together. Yeah. Feeling valuable is definitely one of the main ways that people just, you know, stop coming to events. Not quite worth their time. Or not worth their time, exactly. I think a mistake I made with Stanford EA early on, and I think still haven't maybe fully corrected, but, you know, trying to figure out how to find the right balance here is... I think I was really compelled by the arguments around, oh man, these problems are so, so important and we, we really need really dedicated, sharp, talented people working on these problems. I think I kind of maybe tried to make Stanford EA this like factory of impact where we're just running all these really big programs and, and motivating people to the importance of these problems we're trying to work on as seriously and, you know, giving them the respect they deserve. And I think as a result, maybe lean too hard into the do as much outreach as we can, like run these really big programs, spend as much time trying to introduce these ideas to people, help them figure out their career plans, um, run socials, you know, all these things. And, and I think 
at a point maybe took for granted that the people who, you know, especially for the most involved members who cared a lot about these ideas and cared a lot about doing the most good, maybe somewhat sacrificing what would have been most helpful for the most engaged members mm. at the expense of doing more, say, intro level or, or top of the funnel outreach yeah. rather than prioritizing helping, you know, our most... Rewarding the people who are most engaged already. Yeah. And, you know, I think given the nature of a lot of the problems we're trying to solve, I think a lot of the impact, I think probably most of the impact will come from people who are focused and thinking really critically and rigorously about how to really tackle these problems. Um, and uh, yeah, I think a, a mistake I see both in myself and, and in other organizers is not taking into account how heavy-tailed uh, impact might be and acting accordingly and, you know, not say like backchaining from thinking about which problems seem most important to solve and how we're actually going to solve them, you know, thinking about what say the key bottlenecks are now and what they're likely to be and then and then determining what kinds of community building work to put the most effort into or like what outcomes would from say a, a group organizing perspective would actually lead to the most progress on these problems. Yeah. If someone came to you and said, I've decided to take a leadership role in my local A group, what's a mistake that you can help me avoid based on your experience? What might you tell them? One thing that comes to mind is it can be easy to get into the mindset of, oh, I'm running a student group, therefore I should do the standard things student groups do, like X, Y, and Z, rather than, as I mentioned before, doing this kind of backchaining from what problems am I trying to solve? What am I trying to achieve? with this group and and then, you know, thinking through, okay, if I'm trying to solve problem X, what does that imply about, or yeah, as I said, like, what are the bottlenecks? And then, uh, you know, how can we best address these bottlenecks? What can, say, community building work or group organizing work do to, yeah, help? I also think maybe the ideal vision for an EA group that I have in mind is pretty different from how most student groups operate, at least as far as I'm aware. Yeah, lots of uncertainty, all the caveats. But uh, I think, you know, the kind of group I'd be really excited to see has a very rigorous intellectual environment where group members are improving each other's thinking. As I mentioned before, having this culture of respectful disagreement and, and knowing that these say, like, uh, yeah, disagreements or confusions about, say, oh, like, that reasoning doesn't seem to be consistent or, or for X, Y, Z reasons is coming from a place of, you know, we're really trying to do the most good and we're, we're all on, on the same page about that. So the creating this kind of rigorous intellectual environment, having group members encouraging each other to become more productive and getting better at achieving our goals. Um, so Stanford EA, for example, has an accountability buddy system, which I think can be really great for setting up accountability mechanisms to do things like, say, weekly reviews or, or make a list of what your biggest bottlenecks are and, and actually implementing plans to address them. So like, I, I think systems like that could be really great. Brainstorming projects to execute on potentially together with other group members and becoming a, a tight-knit group of friends. And of course, uh, doing lots of, say, career planning, figuring out what to do over the summer, what opportunities to pursue while, while in school, maybe considering, say, taking a, a term off to, to explore potential career options. Uh, yeah, I, I think an environment that encourages this kind of out-of-the-box thinking and, and considering probably a wider set of actions than, than most students consider, I think could be, uh, yeah, really valuable. And, and I think that seems like a, a big reason for a lot of the success that Stanford EA Group has had. 
Okay, yeah, we'll push on from uh, Lucas student groups in a second, but maybe a last question is well, what what people in the audience should you know, maybe consider this as a way to have impact, getting involved in organizing events and improving the community in their in, in their city or on their campus or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think one of my biggest uncertainties back when I was in my final year at university and deciding what to do next was that community building felt like a very nebulous career or like long-term option. There were a few orgs like 80,000 Hours, of course, and CEA and, and a few others that uh, were focused on community building, but, but the number of options for full-time work in this space felt pretty limited. Or just there was a lot of uncertainty. And obviously, a lot of this comes from the EA community itself being quite young. So there aren't too many examples of, say, 60-year-old role models to... <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, I'm getting um, there, but not quite to. 60 yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think the space is evolving quite rapidly, and I'd be surprised if it didn't continue to do so. The you know the number of funding opportunities, opportunities to start new organizations or projects, and just the number of existing projects and opportunities to contribute full time keep growing. I think I'd be happy to to chat with people who are interested in considering community building as an option, but don't know where to start. I think writing on the EA forum and less wrong are, are some pretty great ways to have your ideas shared with a wider audience and also to kind of put yourself on the radar of other organizers and community members, which could lead to exciting opportunities like internships or collaborations or maybe being reached out to about getting funding for, say, ideas that you might pursue. Yeah, I think the infrastructure is a lot better for right now for people who are interested in getting more involved. And I'd be, I'd be really excited to see more people figure out a problem that isn't currently being addressed or addressed, um, you know, optimally in the community and take agency. Obviously, talk to lots of people and make sure that your idea is good and, and, and like implementation plans um, make sense. But yeah, I, I definitely encourage people to take a, you know, agentic mindset of looking for, for ways to provide value and then making it happen. Yeah, nice. Where can people email you if, uh, if they'd like to check in and uh, see whether they have what it takes or what, what you think of their plans? Uh, yeah, I think my Stanford email is pretty good. So kuhanjay at stanford.edu. Um, we can put that on, on the um, on the post associated with this episode. Yeah. Okay, uh, let, let's put on uh, briefly to talk about the thing that you're currently doing. So, so you've graduated from this, from this master's. So you went from medicine to computer science and maths. Fairly big jump. Uh, and you finished your master's and now you're working full time as the program director at the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what kind of programs does SERI operate? Yeah. So SERI is running um, a number of different programs right now. So some of the big ones. So we'll be running a summer research fellowship that this will be our third iteration. So that'll be starting in a few weeks, I think. So that's an opportunity for people interested in existential risk research, particularly risks from transformative artificial intelligence, uh, synthetic biology and pandemic prevention, nuclear risk, extreme climate change, and I guess like miscellaneous other related work. So like field building, forecasting, etc. to do research for 10 weeks uh, with a mentor on a topic relevant to existential risk mitigation. We also run a virtual existential risk conference. So that's been run for each of the past two years to provide broader, more globally accessible educational and networking opportunity uh, to people who are interested in learning about existential risk reduction. So there are, you know, talks, workshops, uh, a platform where people can message other attendees and set up meetings 
We also try to provide resources for next steps, uh, like uh, how to learn more. If you're interested in careers in the space, checking out 80,000 Hours, I think we send people copies of The Precipice if they uh, want a, a book on existential risks. So yeah, we run the conference. We have collaborations with other relevant organizations. So I think I mentioned earlier that some SERI members helped develop the curriculum and helped run the AI governance fundamentals program that EA Cambridge ran. Um, and we've also been doing field building work. So helping seed relevant institutes or, or student groups. So for example, I think the SERI conference from last year was, um, I think, a big part of the inspiration for starting the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative. So that was a really exciting outcome. I think some collaborations from discussions at last year's conference also led to a U.S. policy speaker series. I think write-ups of takeaways from that are, are on the EA forum. We also recently ran a postdoc hiring round to get some postdoc researchers for next year. And our professors run a class at Stanford called Preventing Human Extinction to introduce uh, first-year students to existential risk. And then there's like the standard like programming to get students excited about these issues. Are you part of the university? Yeah. So I, I'm hired by uh, Stanford University to, to work on Siri. I see. I see. It seems a little bit hard to classify exactly what this is. It's, it's like it's a local group, but it's available to everyone. And it's focused on existential risks, broadly speaking, all, all different kinds of ones. And you, and you run events and you're also doing yeah. fellowship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think Sari got started basically at the beginning of the pandemic um, mm. with a pretty open-ended mandate of wanting to promote existential risk uh, education and research at Stanford. Um, so yeah, I think it was pretty open-ended about how we could, what moving forward with that could look like. I think things are still pretty experimental. It's hard to tell if you found your your niche or, or like how things could be better, you know, going back to the opportunity cost discussion. But yeah, it, it's been, it's definitely been a great learning experience. Is it just you or the other people involved? Yeah, so I'm currently the only full-time employee for SARI. Our professor directors, um, Steve Luby and Paul Edwards, also spend obviously a lot of time teaching the Preventing Human Extinction course and and yeah. dealing with a high-level strategy for SARI and other administrative work. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's mostly student organizers now. Um, I think we'll be hiring we'll be hiring more full-time organizers shortly yeah more staff members shortly but yeah right now it's uh, me <laughs> very cool what well, what's the reaction been to a university course on on human extinction yeah actually quite positive i, I believe so stanford has these first year requirements and one of these requirements is a Actually, I think it was changed maybe just this year. Uh, I don't remember. But anyway, there is a program called Thinking Matters where every first year student has to take a Thinking Matters class. And Preventing Human Extinction is one of these Thinking Matters options. And I believe for the past two years, I'm, uh, I don't know about this year, but yeah, at least for the past two years, it was the Thinking Matters class with the highest enrollment. Wow. So that was pretty exciting. So Thinking Matters, is it's, it's trying to get students to maybe do some practical interdisciplinary subject. Yeah, I think so. I regrettably don't have a great understanding of what actually links all the Thinking Matters courses, but I think it's something about integrating academic ideas into how they're relevant to society at large. Makes sense. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, yeah, thinking back to as an undergrad, what would I do? I, I think the Human Extinction course would be uh, would be a pretty, <laughs> pretty appealing option. It sounds like it's going to be all over the place and kind of exciting. For sure. I mean, yeah, definitely a very provocative title. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you've probably got some, in order to you know get actually hired officially by the university, you must have buy-in from some academics or some academic department that uh, is excited about existential risk and wants to make Stanford kind of a center for thinking about this topic. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so Sari is officially housed in the Center for International Security and Cooperation, which both of our professors are affiliated with. Yeah, I think it's it's just super exciting that there are professors who care enough about these topics to teach a whole course on it. I'm really excited about the future of university and academic engagement with these topics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and there are more and more professors who are, who are taking these ideas really seriously and incorporating it into their research. So, yeah, excited for progress in this space. Yeah. When you graduated, what other career next steps did you seriously consider? Yeah. So I think one of my biggest lessons from my unfortunately not particularly strategic career exploration has been... Um, exploring as much as possible early on would have been really, really valuable. I read the 80,000 hours career guide, kind of just assumed, oh, I'm a reasonably mathy person and found the arguments around long-termism and existential risk quite compelling. Yeah, I I think for the first three summers after getting into EA, I, I, I did different kinds of research. So I did some qualitative econ health policy research, and then the next two summers did more research than I did more quantitative stuff. So first statistics research and then machine learning or um, reinforcement learning research. Yeah, I, I don't know. I got the sense that, you know, I was fine at, at research and it seemed reasonable, but I think in retrospect, it was pretty clearly not the right fit for me. And I only happened to realize this because of, you know, this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the retreat where I learned about the community building grants. I hadn't even intended when I applied for the grant for that to be a career option or that just wasn't in my realm of possibility for me at the time, or I didn't even realize it was an option. And it was only when I started seriously putting effort into community building as a result of, largely as a result of the community building grant that I realized, oh, wow, this is what it's like to to really, really enjoy my work. I think cliches that I had heard about work that didn't really feel like work or you know, the kind of thing that I think about for fun in the shower or, (laughs) you know, talk to my friends about. It started Um, happening to you. Yeah. I think when I realized how exciting work could be, especially when I was really motivated by it and also got, got the sense that I was maybe pretty good and um, doing quite well and actually having an impact, that feeling was really, really exciting for me. And it's quite possible that if things had gone differently, I, I wouldn't have found this thing. And, you know, the same argument implies that maybe there's something even better out there. But uh, yeah, I, I think I wish I had explored more and been more intentional and deliberate about doing t- cheap tests of fit and, you know, advice that the ADK career guide gave that I just maybe didn't listen to enough. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, in terms of like specifically what led me to picking Sari over, say, pursuing research more or, cons- or other options, I think talking to quite a few more senior community members I think across the board, people said, I think you should do community building. It seems like it's going quite well. It seems like you're able to generate some pretty cool insights and ideas for projects to run and are having some pretty good success getting some other really, really great, sharp, dedicated community members involved. And Sari seems like a pretty unique opportunity to see how uh, official university engagement could go. So I was surprised at how basically every, every experienced community member I talked to said that they thought I should do full-time community building and and felt excited about Siri in particular. (laughs) People often get more conflicting messages than that. So I suppose it's (laughs) reassuring to have all the the signals being positive. What's, uh, it's not just like Siri has tons of different balls in the air. What's, what's maybe the one that you're uh, most excited about at the moment? I think the thing I feel most excited about is improving infrastructure for 
the pipeline between student is intrigued by or excited about existential risk reduction and improving the long-term future, going from that point to concretely figuring out how they can meaningfully contribute full-time, ideally, to these issues is, uh, I think there's a lot of infrastructure missing in that process and that this infrastructure exists for many other career paths, at least to a much larger degree. You know, you can imagine if you're interested in software engineering careers, there's pretty standard advice around reading, cracking the coding interview or, or doing some lead code training and, you know, all these resources on interview prep and all these internships that are available and even like first and second year specific programs for, for more junior students. In comparison, if you're interested in existential risk reduction, the set of concrete actions to take is just much less clear. And that was one of the main re- uh, motivations behind starting the SARI summer internship two years ago, just wanting to make there be more concrete options for people who are really excited about these ideas, but didn't know what concretely to do to, you know, at the very least, get to try out research, be part of community with, with others, receive mentorship from more, more senior community members who have, who have been thinking about these issues for longer, making the option of tackling this problem as a real full-time career uh, option. So uh, yeah, more things in that vein, more summer programs, educational programs like the, the fellowships that um, Cambridge is running, career advising, maybe formalizing mentorship. And as I, as, as I maybe briefly mentioned earlier, making it easier to find peers and hopefully potential friends who are in a similar position, working with them and, and making progress together. Because I think, yeah, it can be a lot less daunting when you're on this journey together with friends rather than trying to figure out all these big, scary, potentially very impact relevant things on your own. <laughs> Totally. Well, it sounds like you're, you're going to have your uh, hands extremely full <laughs> in coming years. But yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you stumbled into that community building event and it's uh, pushed you uh, towards a career that seems like it might be a really excellent fit for the long term. Hopefully. And yeah, I mean, insofar as there are maybe even higher impact options out there, I hope I can find them. Um, <laughs> yeah, one, one thing I continually try to do is ask myself, if I look back in two years or five years or what have you and think, oh man, how could I not have realized this, you know, really important consideration or like that A was better than B, like what might those things be and how could I have realized that sooner? Um, and I think there's a an EA forum post I really liked, I think by Thomas Kwa called, uh, I think something like effectiveness is a conjunction of multipliers that basically makes the argument that say you start with some action, like uh, you want to be altruistic and think of some something like, uh, oh, maybe I can give my friend some socks. And then I think the post lists, you know, there are all these multipliers or, or considerations that could make your multiplier impact, say 10x or 40x or 2x or whatever. And even just missing one of these considerations, if there are 20 or 10 to the optimal action, like, you know, missing one 10x consideration out of 20 possible considerations means you're only having <laughs> like 10% of the impact you could be having. And obviously that's like an extremely high bar to try to, I don't know how reasonable it is to ex ante think of all the things, but I think that mindset just makes the importance of thinking rigorously about all the potential considerations, you know, work smart, not hard, or work smart, then hard, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, making that salient. Impact is a conjunction of multiplications. We should uh, stick, it on, stick it on a billboard. <laughs> uh, my guest today has been Kuhan Jayapragasan. Thanks so much for coming on the 80K After Hours podcast, Kuhan. Thank you so much for having me. Just an announcement. We're looking for another audio editor to join our podcast team. 
We're hoping to create a lot more content for both the 80,000 Hours podcast and 80K After Hours, and we could really use some extra help to make that practical. You'd be working with our lead audio engineer, Ben Cordell, on both shows, and the part-time role would include audio mastering, removing silences, taking out filler words, and generally making our hosts and guests sound smarter than they actually are in real life, especially the guy who most regularly hosts the show. We're looking for someone with at least one year of experience doing broadly similar work, and ideally someone who gets what we're trying to do and is excited about more of it existing. So if you want to get paid competitive industry rates to listen to 80,000 Hours podcasts or know someone we should reach out to, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And I produce the show. Thanks for listening.